All right. Men, I got to be honest with you for one minute. I don't know if you know this or not, but when we get married, we gain a superpower. Uh, Now, for me, it wasn't super strength, it wasn't super speed, it wasn't the ability to read minds, that would be helpful at some times. However, there's an ability in which my wife can be talking to me for five minutes, maybe a few minutes, and I'll nod and I'll walk away and I'll say, what did she just tell me? What, what did she just say to me? Or if she's given me a list of three things, I'll remember one out of three. Hey, that's not too bad. At least there's one out of three. Right? There's a name for this phenomenon. It's called selective hearing. Now, husbands, maybe some of you are saying, that's not me. Wives, you can nod your head or you know, raise your hand. Yeah, that, that, that happens. Right? There's a superpower that we get when we, are, when we become married, selective hearing. I never knew. Who knew? But this morning, as we celebrate Father's Day, I understand, right? Here's the thing, when when I'm preaching through holidays, like Mother's Day, Father's Day, things like that, I understand that everyone here is not a father. Everyone here may not be a husband. Everyone here is not a man, right? And I understand that, but I want to challenge and encourage you that doesn't give you the excuse to look out the window or look at the fans or or, or, or be distracted or zone out. I, I want to encourage you to listen today as we talk about what it looks like to be a biblical man, specifically a biblical husband and a biblical father. But here's the, here's the encouragement. If you're a single lady here this morning, if you listen today, you can learn and look for these qualities in a future husband and a man. If you're married, ladies, keep your husbands accountable to these qualifications to this calling in love. In love, please. In love. If you're a single man, start working on these godly attributes, on these godly characteristics. Know what's biblically commanded of you. If you're a married man, strive to do these things. Continue to grow in your faith. Continue to become more godly through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and and you're just younger and you're like, well, I'm just a child. That's okay. There's something here for you as well. Right? There's always a little thing my, my dad said, honor your father and mother. I was like, well, don't exasperate your children. Right? There's a little you know, zingers back and forth. But there's something here for you as well. And I also understand that, biblically speaking, not everybody is called to be married and called to have children. But through these verses, we see a beautiful spiritual connection that Paul makes between Jesus Christ and his love of the church. In the, in the symbol and the imagery of a husband's love for his wife. There are rich theological and doctrinal issues and, and things in, in these passages. So even if you'd think it doesn't apply to me because I'm not a husband, because I'm not a dad, because I'm not a man, it does. It's God's word. It's here for a reason. So we're going to be taking a sidetrack, taking a break from the Gospel of John, and we're going to pick up in the middle of Ephesians. Hopefully you're still there in Ephesians chapter 5. But I want to give you a little bit of a breakdown because as we're, we're reading almost the end of a letter, I want to give you just a little bit of context. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And the first three chapters, there's six chapters, the first half of this letter is all about the Christian doctrine. What do we believe, what should we believe as the called out ones, as the Christians? And then the rest of his letter, the second half, is all about Christian duty. So he starts with what you believe, and then he takes and says, in light of what you believe, how do we live that out? 
Right? So how do we live out what our faith? How do we live out what we believe? And earlier in chapter 5, I preached on, on, on that text a few months ago, Paul talked about this expression of walking in love. In the previous section, right before we get to, to wives submit to your husbands, right before that verse, Paul says this in, in chapter 5, verse 21. Giving thanks always and everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now he's going to expand what that biblical, loving, humble submission looks like in the context of the family structure, in the context of marriage. And before we move further, I want to say this as a warning. Men, I want you to look at me, all of you look at me real quick, do not have selective hearing when it comes to this text. Don't have selective vision when it comes to this text. This text has been used and twisted and skewed really for evil. For, for the justification of, of mistreatments of wives and our families. So men, please don't check out just because, oh, I know that verse. Okay, keep reading. Stay with me to the end. I have a, my, my notes here. I usually print out the verses a little bit bigger so I can read them so I'm not like you know, squinting too much. But in these verses that we're going to read, the orange on the, on the paper, I don't know if you can see it, those are the wives' roles or the wives' responsibility in this, just in this section. Now the green, and if you notice, there's more green than there is orange. That's for the men, for the husbands, for the fathers. So I want you to see something here. Men, this, this passage, although it starts with wives submitting to your husbands, there's a lot for us to go through and to talk about what it means to be a biblical man, a biblical husband, a biblical father. So if you have your notes and you want to follow along, specifically, I'm going to talk to the husbands and the fathers in this room but again, I'm going to try to include, and, and there's, there's beauty and there's doctrine and there's theology in here for everybody, but we're going to discuss three main truths that Paul reveals and he teaches us in his letter. The first we'll see, the husband is the leader. The husband is the head. The second we'll see that the husbands were commanded to love our wives. And the third is we're going to see what it looks like or to have a fatherly, a good fatherly example. Before I read, let me pray. Father, we praise you this morning. I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that I'm, that I'm able to effectively be in tune with your spirit this morning, be led by your spirit to preach your truth, not my own, to preach your word, not my agenda. I pray we can set distractions out of our hearts, out of our minds. I pray that we can read your word fully and not pick and choose what we like and what we don't like, but rather we understand this is your word and the full of it applies to us. So Lord, we thank you for our time. We thank you for this church that we can gather to worship you, to read your word, to pray together, to sing together. I pray that you bless the remainder of our time. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Let's read those couple of verses again together. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the first thing we see is the husbands are called to be the leaders, the head of their household. Now let me say this crystal clear in the beginning so you can't say, oh, I, I didn't hear it at the end. We're called to be a leader, not a dictator. We're called to be a leader, the head of the household, not a king 
ruling with an iron fist. What we just read in light of the culture and the time period we live in now can come across as offensive. I could probably get canceled for this. Cancel culture, right? That's a thing. right? Because what we just read, we see here that there's a biblical structure and the expectation of the roles of men and women when it comes to marriage according to God's Word. It's not my opinion. It's God's Word. What we read are men are to be the head, the leaders of their homes. Men are supposed to be leaders of their families. They're not the dictators. They're not the king of the castle who is ruling over on, on his throne. And the next question should be this. If I'm to be the leader and not a dictator, what does it look like to be a godly leader? Right? I think that's, that's, that's the next step logically. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's just a few pages away, a little further. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to answer, how should we lead as a godly example, as a godly husband of our households? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. We read this. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And in this one verse, I'm going to argue and say there are three traits or three qualities that we can look at to what it means to be a godly, biblical leader of our household as husbands. The first one would be this. If you have your notes, letter A. Actually, wait, just kidding, it's not in your notes. The first is this. Be considerate of your wife. Be considerate. That means what? Being sensitive. Considering your wife's physical and emotional needs. It's this idea of constantly nourishing and cherishing your wife. Right? He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Not a dictator way, not an authoritative way, right? not in an argumentative way, understanding way. Be considerate to your wives. The next thing we see is he says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And I would argue here it's a call to be chivalrous, to practice chivalry. Now the weaker vessel here does not mean the woman is inferior by any means in the eyes of God. Right? Male and female, we're both created in the image of God with equal dignity, respect, honor, and love. But there's different roles that God has called us to if you're a man or a woman. And here, the weaker vessel is talking about physical. The physical strength of women, right? they're the weaker. And I'm not even, I would say science backs this up. It's biology backs this truth up. But I would say this, be chivalrous. Provide and protect for your wife. Right? When I think of chivalry, I think of holding the door open. I know it's a silly example, but that's true. You're being respectful. You're honoring your wife by holding the door open for her. Right? Provide, protect your wife. The third thing in here I would say is this, to be an honorable companion. Be an honorable companion. We read, since they are the heirs with you of the grace of life, and when I read that phrase, I was like, okay, that makes sense. You know, they're, they're called to eternal life. They're called to salvation. We're both Christians. We're both saved by, by Jesus' blood. But actually, the wording here of grace of life, as I was studying and researching it, it doesn't refer to eternal life for salvation, but rather the gift of marriage. God has gifted and given us this beautiful gift here on earth of marriage. 
is talking about a true and intimate friendship that belongs to those husband and wife together in the gift of marriage. Husbands, I'll say this, be your wife's best friend. Be your wife's best friend. What that means is you spend time together. When you come home from work, don't go and take a nap and and don't close the door and don't complain. Be your wife's friend. Spend time together. Enjoy each other's company. And as I'm going to be preaching, I wanted to say this in the beginning, but I reminded myself now, I'm not up here saying I'm the world's perfect husband. You can ask Stephanie. She'll tell you as, as early as yesterday we got into a fight. Right? I'm, I'm preaching here what God has put on my heart, what His Word says, but I need to be held accountable to the standard too. I'm not here preaching at you. It's us together, all of us. Right? So don't think I have my life figured out, that I'm the most godly man in the world, and, and we're, you know, we never get into fights, and we're, oh, everything's perfect. No, no, no. No, please don't put me on that pedestal. I don't want to be up there. I don't, I'm not up there. So husbands, be your wife's best friend. Husbands, we're to lead our wife with consideration with respect, with honor, with love. We're called to lead our families, but at the same time, we're called to remember who we follow, who we're supposed to follow. In 1 Corinthians, you could turn there, you don't have to, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says this, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So you have the hierarchy of really the godly examples to follow. You have God, Jesus, husband, wife. And husbands, I want to say this, lead in a manner worthy of following. Lead how Jesus led. Love how Jesus loved. Husbands, we're also called to be the spiritual leaders of our households. I want to share just a really alarming statistic. If a father does not go to church, If a father doesn't go to church, only the wife and only the children, it's believed on the low side, 2% of of those children when they grow up and they're adults, that only 2% will be regular worship attendees. On the high end, they found up to 18 maybe. So if the husband's absent in church, even attending church, and it's just the family, it's just the wife, 2 to 18% that that child will grow up and continue to go to church. Now, it changes when the husband when the father regularly attends, even without the mother, that number jumps up to 66%. 66%. If both the father and mother attend the church together as a family, 75% of the children will grow up to attend church as a regular worship attendee. And what that tells me is this. Men, we are influencing. We are influencers. We talked about this at our men's ministry last, uh, yesterday. How each one of us, even as we disciple, as we share the gospel, people will look at us. We have influence. They'll look at our lives. And here we see the influence of a father. Men, I need you to hear me. Your involvement in the local church matters. It matters to your family. It matters to your wives. How you view the church, how you speak about the church, right? Maybe you show up and you just complain the whole ride there and the whole ride home, and then all the day Saturday you're like, no, do we really have to go? Can we, you know, can we just have a sick day tomorrow? Do we, right? It matters what we say about the church. The statistics show the influence that we have over our children and our family. Godly men understand the importance of what it means to be a godly father. And I want to say this. Husbands, here's a challenge. Initiate. 
Initiate and lead prayer for your family. Read the Bible together. Yeah, read it on your own, but read it together. But the thing is, you're the spiritual leader. We're the spiritual leaders. We should be the ones initiating and starting that. Show your family that personal devotional time matters. That God is worthy of all the praise, of all the glory, and all the time that we give to Him. Something that we did growing up that just came to my mind earlier this week is every night before bed, we would go in my parents' room and we would pray through the prayer list. Right? In, in the bulletin, we have the prayer list here. Right? When I was a kid, we still had this. And what my dad would do is he set this every night before bed. We'd go in the bedroom. We'd actually kneel on, like, in front of the bed or all around the bed. And we would pray. We'd pick something and pray together. And as I was thinking about this, right, that stood out in my mind as a memory. And that's something that I'm like, we can do that. So here, that's a little challenge for us. Initiate. Initiate the spiritual things. Maybe it means this. When you're at church, sing loudly. Now some of you might have cringed a little bit and you're like, oh, I can't sing really well. That's okay. It's not going to distract me. Nowhere in the Bible does it say sing in tune to the Lord. It says sing with a joyful noise. It says noise. Sing with a joyful noise to the Lord. I want to say this, be seen worshiping. Not in a way like the Pharisees where they wanted people to, to glorify them and say, oh, look how good I am, I'm fasting today. Or look at how much money I put in. Not in a bragging way. Be seen as a godly example so that when your children see it, when your wives see it, when people see it, it's the example to follow. I remember Paul, I think it's Philippians 4, he says, follow me as I follow the Lord. So even Paul's encouraging the church in Philippi to look to him because if you look to Paul, he's setting the godly example of what it means to, to follow Christ. In the same way, be seen worshiping. Maybe smile. Show that you enjoy worshiping the Lord. If you're serving, come with a joyful heart. Not one that's like this, I guess I'll, I guess I'll go to church. and Okay, all right. You know, hallelujah, God is so good. Okay, all right, all right. Is it time to go yet? Be seen praising the Lord. It impacts the family. Its statistics show it. Men, we're called by God to be the head of our homes, to be the spiritual head of our homes, as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is, in, and is Himself its Savior. So the first thing we see, and, and you could turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, the first thing we see here, men, we're called to be leaders. We're called to be the heads of our homes. The second thing we see in the next eight verses is we're commanded to love our wives. In the next eight verses, the word love is used five times. In school, they taught you if a word's repeated over and over again, circle it. It's there for a reason. There's a point being made. And in the Greek, and I'm sure you guys know this, I'm not spending a lot of time here. In the Greek, there's different words for different types of love. You have a word for a sexual love. You have a word for a brotherly love or a family love. And then you have the word for love here that's agape or agapo. And that's a selfless love, a love, I would argue, in the highest form. It's a love despite being loved back. It's I'm going to choose to love you even if you hate me. It's agape love. It's used in all of the rest of this chapter. I love that Paul doesn't leave us with the command, husbands, love your wives. And I love that he doesn't end it there. If he did, we might be in trouble he answers and tells us what that love should look like. So we don't have to guess. We don't have to hope that we're doing it right. There are three types of ways that we can show love and practice love to our, to our wives, husbands. 
The first in your notes, letter A, sacrificially. We are to love sacrificially. Verse 25 says this, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and here it is, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Without getting into those verses too much, that's the gospel right there. Husbands, we're to love our wives the same way that what? Jesus loved his church. It's a sacrificial love. Throughout the, Old, the New Testament, over and over again, we see Jesus loving people in humility. We see him loving people sacrificially. And I'll build up to the cross, because I'm sure you all know, okay, oh yeah, the cross. Before we get there, just the fact that Jesus, who is God, humbled himself, came down from heaven to earth. Just pause there for a moment. That's sacrificial love. The creator of the universe, the one outside of time, entered into time. The one who made everything came and dwelt among his creation, came as fully man, fully God. That's sacrificial love. Another thing, the night before Jesus is to be crucified, as he's having the last supper, the last Passover meal with his disciples, his disciples are arguing with each other. Who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Jesus knows in a few hours the, the, the pain he's going to endure, the betrayal he's going to feel, them all leaving him, running away from him. And in that moment, he looks at their prideful hearts and he sees dirty feet. Right? He sees their dirty feet. He stoops down, takes the slave's job and cleans their feet before they have this Passover meal. And what he did was so outrageous and so embarrassing that we can see from how Peter responds to it. Jesus, you're not touching my feet. Right? That's, that's the job of a slave. And rather we see Jesus humbly sacrificially loving his disciples in a practical way. And now the ultimate example, probably what we all think of, is Jesus' death on the cross. His death on the cross, that he came down from heaven to earth and he died for us. That's the ultimate example. He willingly gave up his life for us. The beauty of the gospel is this, that we're all sinners, that none of us deserve God's love. That even if we sinned once, we're guilty of all the law. That even if, if, if we sinned once, that's it. There's, there's no redemption for us on our own. And because of that, God came down from heaven to save us. He came to be our Savior. And we're only saved by Jesus' death on the cross. Not by being a good enough person. Not by donating enough money to charity. Not by helping the homeless shelters. Those are good things to do. However, those don't save you. What saves us is Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross. His sacrificial love of being our Savior. As we sang, how deep the Father's love for us. We sang that, that beautiful hymn that points to the cross of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Loving sacrificially means this. It means putting someone else's needs before your own. Before your own. Men, as we read, wives are to submit to us, the husbands, we're the head of the household, but to love sacrificially means our wife's concerns, her needs, we put before our own. We love her sacrificially. 
And I know these are silly examples, but here are some practical things of, of what I'm talking about. If your wife is outside and you're outside too and, you're, and she's cold, it means you give her your jacket. If someone's going to be cold out of either one of you, it's you that's supposed to be cold. Right? That's, that's a silly example, but it's sacrificially loving your wife. If you open the freezer and there's only enough ice cream left for one of you to enjoy, husbands, I'm sorry, you can ask first, but sacrificially give it up for your wife. Again, silly, but, but practical. If you're struggling financially, right, and this is where it might get a little tough, if you're struggling, it means that you go out, you find an additional job, you provide for your family, you're the leader. If someone breaks into your house at night, you don't send your wife down. You go down. For, at first, I'd call 911, but make sure your wife is safe and you protect your wife. That's sacrificial love. You're willing to give up your life for your wife as Christ gave up his life for us. Silly examples, but I think the spiritual truth is still there. I'll say this, it's really hard to justify abuse. It's really hard to abuse or to abuse our calling as, of being a leader when we love sacrificially. Why? This is what I mean. Every decision we make, how we treat our wives, how we lead our wives, should be filtered through this question, this thought, is this loving my, way, my, loving my wife the way that Christ has loved us? And you think, right, before you respond in anger, that, that's, our, that's our first sinful <laughs> desire, at least for me, before we do that, think, is what I'm about to say is how I'm treating my wife through this question, am I loving her the way that Christ has loved me? Or is this harming her? Is this going to abuse her or harm her? Jesus shows his perfect and ultimate love for us by sacrificially giving up his life for us. Husbands, he calls us to love our wives that same way. It's not my opinion, it's God's word. The first is sacrificially loving. The second, let her be in your notes. Husbands, we are to love our wives fully. Love our wives fully. Let's read verse 28 and 29, and then we'll jump down to 33. In the same way, husbands, love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and, ch and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Let me read that last part again. Just as Christ does the church. Jump down to verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. These verses remind me of something that Jesus said. He says this, love your neighbor as yourself. It's this weird command that, 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 that's set up here that we love ourselves. And I'm not saying it's a, a selfish type of love or it's this prideful type of love, but we're commanded husbands to love our wives as we love our own bodies. Anyone who's in their right mind, who's in their right mind, will not purposely cause harm to their bodies. I'd also argue this, that every day that we live, we love our bodies, whether you think so or not. Subconsciously, we love our bodies. And you might say, well, how? We make sure we get enough to eat for the day, that we don't starve. We make sure we have enough drinks for the day, enough water so we don't thirst. Hopefully, we get enough sleep every night so we don't go crazy. Some of us even work out to improve and to strengthen our bodies. God bless you. But hopefully, 
when we're driving, we put our seatbelts on. Why? Because we don't want to go through the windshield, right? Even in these little simple things we do, we're loving our bodies. We do all that because we love our bodies. As we love ourselves fully, as we love our bodies, we're called to be loving our wives in that same way. And then as a side note, in verse 33, he says, let the wife see she respects her husband. So there's this book called Love and Respect, and I'm sure if it, in marriage counseling, I don't know how long ago you've maybe done that, but there's this simple truth, and I have to say it's true. It's this idea that women crave love, and men crave what? Respect. Yeah, some of you, respect. I would say right here in verse 33, Paul says, let each one of you, husbands, love your wives, and then women, respect your husbands. And I've shared this before, so I'll share it again. There have been times throughout, randomly, maybe throughout the week, where Stephanie might say something to me. She'll say, David, do you love me? I'm like, of course I do. Look, here's a ring. I love you. What do you mean? What do you mean? I, I, I washed the dishes. I, I drove you to the store. We went shopping together. We watched the movie you wanted to watch. Of course I love you. But she'll say this, you never said it. You never said it. And I'll tell you something too. Being a father... And I shared this before. I make sure that Naya hears me say, Naya, Daddy loves you. Dad loves you. There's times where I have to stop and say, as a husband, my wife needs to hear me say, I love you. Not, sh yeah, show love, verbalize it. Why? Because women crave love. They want love. I'm telling you, men, it'll go a long way. There are a lot of fights that we get into, and a lot of them are my fault. And this is why, because I feel disrespected. A lot of times I, I'm not mad or upset because I feel unloved, it's because I feel like I've been disrespected. And because of that, I act out in sin and anger, and I say unloving things. I do unloving things, right? But if we were to stop before we get there and have our first instinct, men as husbands, is what I'm about to say or do glorify God? Is what I'm about to say or do loving her the same way that Christ has loved me? This is something, again, I'm working on this. I'm not sitting up here saying I'm perfect. I got it all together. I don't. I don't. Here's a challenge. When your wife mistreats you, not if, when your wife mistreats you, men, when she disrespects you, that's the chance to show her the love of Christ. It's easy to love somebody when they respect you. It is. Let's be honest. When she disrespects you, that's the perfect chance to live out your faith, to live out this godly example of being a husband, to show her love, to love her how Christ loved the church. It goes against our every instinct, against our sinful heart, but remember how Jesus has loved us. What does the Bible say? Even while we were enemies of the cross, Jesus didn't wait for us to get our lives put together, for us to be as good as we could be, because, spoiler alert, we'll never get there on our own, ever. He didn't wait for us to be his friends. While we were still enemies of the cross, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1, he says, He loved us even before the foundation of the world, and he called us his own. We need to fight against the selfish desire, the selfish pride and men, we need to love our wives. Love our wives. 
The third thing we see is to love our wives deeply. Deeply. Verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul's quoting from Genesis, and Paul reminds us of the beauty of marriage. Marriage is leaving your parents' authority and now having your own family. Men, that means it's leading your own family. Women, it means submitting to the authority of your husband, not your father, not your mother. Men, same thing there. You're the leader of your household, not your parents. And I, I, I'm going to say this because I look around and, and yeah, there are some young families here, but, but also older too. If your children aren't in your house, my challenge is this. Are you letting them lead their household? And, and, and I don't mean never get involved, never give them opinions or advice. You can do that. You should do that. In love, if it's godly and biblical advice, do that. But are you letting your children lead their own household? Or are you micromanaging their, their family as if it's your own? What we read here is the husband and the wife are to hold fast to each other. It's this word cleave, cleave together, glued, cemented together. It's a depiction of a deep, deep love that's unbreakable. An unbreakable bond. A commitment to one another from husband to wife to join together. Men, this means that we're committed to our wives. We need to protect, to love them above all else and anything else on this earth. Obviously, right, we love God the most. We, we love Christ. We worship God. But after that, our wives are our top responsibility. Right? We're, we're, we are called as Christians to love everyone, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy, to love the, the, the brothers, to love the Lord, right? After loving the Lord, I would say this, our, our love should go to our wife. Don't let things, work, money, possessions, friends, neighbors, even church, be careful with this, don't let things siphon that love away from your wife. Don't let it rob the love that's due to her, that she deserves, that we're called to love. Here's a little summary. The motive behind a husband's love for his wife is Christ's love for the church. We're to reflect Jesus and the way he loved, the way he treated others. We're to reflect, reflect that loving commitment. And I'll keep going because I don't want to be you know, too long today. But number three, we're going to make a transition here. We're, we're now moving from the realm of husband to father. We're going to see a good fatherly example. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you that you have lived long in the land. Parents, let me say that. If you're quoting this verse to your children, you're not allowed to stop there. Don't stop there. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Oh, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're told here what not to do. Some people have debated, is, is the father word here specifically for fathers or is it for parents? I'm going to say it doesn't matter, but I'm going to talk to men specifically right now. Do not provoke your children to anger. 
in this time period, under Roman law, and I'm going to butcher this name, so bear with me, there was this law called this, Patria Potestas. I could be saying that wrong. It sounded pretty good. It was all about the father's ultimate supreme authority over his children, over his family. Under this Roman law, the father, the husbands, could sell his family's members as slaves. He could make them work in the fields in shackles, in chains. Don't get any ideas. The father was also allowed to inflict the death penalty to his family. Here's a really sad one. There was a custom when a child was born, they'd lay the child at the father's feet, newborn baby at the father's feet. If the father picked it up, that meant the father wants to keep the baby. If the father turned his back and walked away, now forgive my language, they'd throw the baby out. They, they, they wouldn't want the baby. Oftentimes they just put the baby out on the streets. And a beautiful picture of the church, and I said this before on Mother's Day, is the, the, the mothers and the women in the early church would walk the streets and they'd find the abandoned children and they'd bring them into the church and love, love them and support them and keep them alive. Right? That's just a little beautiful imagery there. But here's the big point with this law. Under this Roman law, a son never outgrew his father's authority. If he was the top head honcho of the Roman Empire and his father was still alive, guess what? Your father is really the main boss. The only way to get out of your father's authority was if he died. So on the one hand, in the culture, there is this understanding the father has complete authority. Whatever he says goes. It doesn't matter what he says or how he treats you. You obey, you listen. On the other side, we see Paul and his command here combats, directly contradicts that law with this. He says, do not, what, provoke your children to anger. There's something that fathers shouldn't be doing. And the wording here, right, provoking your children, it's, it's just a repeated, ongoing thing and over and over, over again so that it gradually builds up in the child's heart and it just makes resentment and bitterness and wrath and, and they're fueled by their hatred and eventually it boils out and they explode. I was reading a book and, and, and some of the examples they said as, as ways to not provoke or ways that fathers provoke their children nowadays is this, being overly strict, having a lack of trust, showing favoritism, being overprotective, Constantly pressuring them to overachieve. How about this one? Trying to live out your failed dreams in your child. Always talking with discouragement, never encouraging. Making them feel unwanted, undeserving of love, and neglected. Physically or verbally abusing your child. These actions will lead to children who have a deep-seated hanger, hanger, anger in their hearts, that will build up to resentment, to bitterness, and it fuels hatred. And instead, Paul says, don't do those things. Don't treat the family with the, uh, the ultimate authority like the Romans are saying you could do. Instead, he says, train them up. Build them up. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And the word discipline, it can both mean like punishment, but also training. 
If you've ever had to train for something, you had to discipline your body. If you were training for a marathon or training for whatever, it's a discipline that you do. It's a habit over and over and over again. In order to be disciplined in something, it takes time and training to do so. And Paul's saying this training, this discipling or, or discipline should be done how? According to God's Word. By the instruction of the Lord. How we love our children, how we discipline them, how we teach them, how we raise them up. We find all the answers for that right here in God's Word. This is our instruction manual, fathers, for raising godly children, for being a godly husband, a godly father. Again, I know there are a lot of us who, who our kids are out of our house. Right? They're older. The, the relationships change, right? They're not under your authority. Let me say this. It's not too late to love your children. It's not too late to train them up in the Lord to stay in their life, to give them godly examples, godly advice. If you feel like you failed as a parent, I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep reaching out. Keep loving them. Show them what the love of Christ looks like by this, by loving your wife. How you love your wife in front of your children will affect how your children view you. In the same way, treat your children with love, with respect. Allow them to lead their household if they're out of your house, but you're still able and you're still allowed to give some godly examples and, and godly advice to them. But I want you to understand, don't give up. Don't think it's a lost cause. Keep praying for them. I want to end with this study. It's from a Christian psychiatrist. His name is Dr. Paul Meir. He concluded that there are four factors to produce a right parent relationship. Right, so a way to make sure your child has the best relationship with you as they grow up, here are four things he found. He's a Christian. He said the first was this, a genuine love of parents towards each other and their children. Like I mentioned before, if you're not loving your wife, if you're disrespecting your wife in the presence of your children, that's terrible. That's not a godly example. Love your wife, love your child. The second is this, be firm, consistent, and fair when it comes to discipline. Not wrathful, not out of vengeance, but the punishment fits the crime. It's just, it's loving, but it's consistent. The third is another, consistency of standards or expectations for parents and children. If you don't have clear expectations of what you, how you want your children to act, they're going to live every day in fear. And every day wondering, if uh, is today, am I messing up? Am I doing good? Am I doing bad? And that's going to lead to harm when they're older. The fourth and final is this, and I would say this is the most biblical principle. The father is the true head of the house. The father is the true head of the house. Those four things, those four factors produce, have the best outcome for producing right child-parent relationships. So men, as we remember and we reflect on Jesus' love for us, for his church, I pray that in turn we treat our wives, we love our wives, we love our children, we love others in that same love. That it overflows in our heart outwardly and it, it changes how we love. How we love our wives and how we love our children. And I want to end with this. I know some of us in this room have had fathers that have failed us. Maybe you had fathers who were abusive. 
fathers who never said one loving thing to you ever. Maybe they never said, I love you. I want you to be encouraged by the simple truth. Our Heavenly Father, God, loves us perfectly. We sang, you're perfect in all your ways. He never breaks His promises. When we read His Word, when we read about the love He has for us, right, the eternal love, the eternal life that's offered, salvation that's offered, we can trust and know that His Word, His bond, is everlasting. Where our earthly fathers have broken promises, have failed us, haven't loved us the way they should, our Heavenly Father has. And delight in that truth. And I'll still say this, as hard as it is, you're still called to love your Father. I'm not going to say it's easy, but that's a calling of a Christian, of one who follows Christ. Christ died for his enemies. Why? Out of love. Out of love for his church. Let's pray. God, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your word and, and for what we just read about how you created the family, how you created husband and wives and children and gave each of us specific roles. We thank you for your word that it tells us how we are to act in a godly manner, in a way that glorifies you. God, I want to pray specifically right now for all the fathers, all the young men here this morning, all the husbands here this morning. I want to pray, Lord, that you continue to work in their hearts. I pray that you soften our hearts that we can love our wives in the same way that Jesus has loved us, in a sacrificial, deep, ultimate way. I pray, Lord, that we're able to love our wives even when they, we feel disrespected. I pray, Lord, that we can continue to, to joyfully worship you, to set that godly examples in our household, in a world that wants to break up the God-given family structure, that constantly attacks the role and the leadership of men. I pray that you raise up godly men in this church who fear you, who love you, and love their wives. So God, I pray for a great week as we head out. I pray, Lord, that we can continue to have gospel conversations with people, with coworkers, with neighbors, with families. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here today who's hurting, who, who maybe this talking about fathers is bringing up resentment and bitterness and wrath i pray lord you comfort their heart holy spirit i pray that you give them peace allow them to find a way to love their father because they're commanded to you command us to love even our enemies god we praise you as our perfectly heavenly father the one who never fails us may we always delight in that simple truth jesus we love you in your name we pray amen